This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. As I was asked to speak about uh, the use of, of ocean technologies um, and also uh, for doing so in the context of, of both ethics and food, you'll see that I've, I've peppered my slides this evening with uh, a number of proverbs, and I did so mostly for fun, but also to perhaps inspire some, some thoughts and, and maybe some subsequent discussion about how we can uh, use ocean technology, what to uh, remember to, uh, to do, what not to do, uh, when we are exploiting these technologies and also using ocean resources that uh, are investigated using these technologies. A little history about myself. I, 30 years ago, transitioned from a, a job at Intel Corporation making uh, microelectronics uh, to go to gradu graduate school at uh, UCSD and Scripps Institution of Oceanography in an applied ocean science program. And while, sub while also working at the Southwest Fisheries Science Center on Scripps Institution's campus, I studied uh, the accuracy and precision of echo sounder surveys of Antarctic krill. And uh, while I was uh, in a survey vessel spending months at sea, uh, going back and forth on transect lines, uh, observing the distribution and abundance of, of Antarctic krill, I realized then that there was some disconnect in the spatial and temporal sampling of land-based seals and penguins that were uh, breeding in the summer months on the, on the Antarctic archipelago. Um, and the prey that we were observing farther offshore from the ship. And that experience had me delving into the production of uh, instrumented small craft that allowed us to take the sampling that we were doing from the ship and, and uh, continuing it near shore in, within the foraging range of these seals and penguins. Uh, also developing moorings and that put me on a path of uh, developing uh, ocean technologies as well as uh, instruments and, and uh, developing methods for studying organisms in the ocean. In 2010, with the prospect of a, a new uh, Southwest Fisheries Science Center being constructed on the campus of Scripps Institution of Oceanography, I, I uh, promoted the idea and actually helped design specify the, the uh, ocean technology development tank that is part of this, this uh, building. The ocean technology test and development tank is a, a structure that is uh, filled with about 2 million liters of, of water. The dimensions of the tank are 10 meters wide, 10 meters deep, and 20 meters long. And the water, the temperature and salinity of the water in this tank can be modulated to emulate the conditions in oceans around the world. That gives us the ability to test uh, instrumentation, uh, refine it, and make measurements of animals under very controlled conditions prior to going out into the ocean and uh, making the measurements of the animals that we're trying to learn more about. For example, we uh, have developed and, and tested uh, a fast drop stereo camera system that allows us to get imagery and, and measurements and species identification of animals um, beneath the ocean surface. And a 
quiet, high voltage, high definition, remotely operated vehicle that allows us to get uh, close up uh, and less intrusive uh, observations of, of animals near the sea floor. I'm presently using technologies to observe small pelagic fish like anchovy, sardine, jack mackerel, Pacific mackerel, and herring. Uh, these, these species are what we call forage fish, part of the uh, forage fish assemblage uh, that are also food for a number of seabirds, sharks and rays, squids, uh, larger fish, and a number of marine mammals. Their tendency to, to aggregate tightly um, close to the surface and close to the seashore also make them uh, easy targets for uh, commercial fisheries. For example, the commercial fishery in, in Monterey uh, for sardine that was chronicled in, in John Steinbeck's uh, Cannery Row. He looked at uh, and described the, the rise and fall of the sardine stock and fishery and the uh, socioeconomic implica implications of, of this uh, fishery and it's not just the, the Monterey fishery that we, we um, consider along the west coast of, of North America, but there's also fisheries for small pelagics in Ensenada, Mexico, uh, San Pedro near Los Angeles, um, off of Oregon and Washington near the Columbia River mouth, and then off of the west coast of Vancouver Island in Canada. The Timing of these fisheries is, is not uh, throughout the year, but can be modulated by the migration of these uh, various species. Uh, the sardine stock tends to aggregate off of central and southern California during the spring and uh, where, when they spawn. And then when the stock is large enough, it migrates uh, farther north, the, the larger animals going farther than the smaller, smaller fish, and uh, compresses along the coast in uh, for, to feed during the summer months. Before I continue to describe uh, some of the technologies that we're using to study these fish, I'd like to stop for a moment and, and kind of pull back to get a uh, global and, and environmental perspective on the, the data that we collect. So our globe, our spinning globe, is, is heated differentially by the, by the sun, uh, hotter at the equator where we have lower pressure and uh, cooler at the poles where there's higher pressure and that pressure differential sets up circulation cells and the spinning earth um, gives some curvature to these atmospheric cells and the, the atmospheric cells set up uh, ocean circulation patterns which we call oceanic gyres. Variation in the solar intensity will modulate these gyres. But along the west coast of North America we have prevailing northern or northwesterly winds and this uh, acts upon the surface waters to push them south and offshore uh, where they are replaced by cooler, more nutrient-rich water from the deep and these nutrients in the photic zone or the, the areas where we have light uh, combine to cause increased productivity in, in phytoplankton, the basis of the food chain. So this uh, phytoplankton growth or, or the productivity of the oceans in general are modulated by variations in the solar um, solar insulation. These uh, upwelling regions are, are, are located around the world, shown in red, and while they comprise only about 1% of the, the ocean surface area, the fish that are taken, about 50% of the, uh, the global fish harvest is taken from these areas. 
It's this variation in, in productivity um, that is manifested in, what we, in, in a phenomenon we call the Pacific Decadal Oscillation Index. The Pacific Decadal Oscillation Index will modulate uh, not just the productivity, but also the uh, variation in the species composition in the ocean basin. And there are uh, warm and cold phases to this phenomenon. Uh, higher frequency manifestation or correlation of, to the PDO is, is what we call the El Nino Southern Oscillation. So the Pacific Decadal Oscillation Index, shown here on this graph, illustrates that there's a, a, about a 50 to 60 year periodicity uh, in, in this phenomenon. And it's been posited that the warmer oceanic periods are conducive to sardine production, uh, whereas the colder regimes are, are more conducive to, to anchovy production. Now this graph uh, shows you the sinusoid indicating the, the cycle of the PDO and the warm and cold regimes. It also shows in the, in the red the trajectory of the sardine biomass that is uh, declining in conjunction with the transition from a warm to a cold period that occurred in the mid-1900s. Now there was this phenomenon that was talked about in John Steinbeck's Cannery Row. At the same time, the stock was decreasing due to uh, lower productivity in this transition of the oceanic uh, environment. Uh, we see that the harvest of the sardine shown here uh, for Monterey area in black, Oregon and Washington fisheries in the, in the darker gray, and then the Vancouver Island fisheries farthest north in the white, were increasing during the time that this stock was uh, gaining some pressure from the environment and, and decreasing. So between 1960 and 1980 approximately, the stock was depressed so low that it was uh, hardly detectable. But as the PDO transitioned from a cold regime to a warm regime, uh, we started to see the residual stock uh, start to become influenced by the uh, possibility for higher production uh, in this onset of the warm regime, and uh, we eventually started to see an increase in the stock biomass, and we started to see a uh, res resumption of the, uh, the <clears throat> migration of the sardine from the Southern California area up farther north. It was at this time that the stock migration started to reach um, Monterey and then Oregon and Washington that the, uh, the harvest uh, took off again. It was also at this time, which is 2006, that uh, I, I started to begin the, what we call an acoustic trawl survey to, to monitor the stock of sardine, but also a number of other small pelagic fish species that I've talked about. We conduct these acoustic trawl surveys from, from NOAA fisheries survey vessels like this one here. This image shows the uh, NOAA ship uh, Reuben Lasker, which is based out of San Diego, and it turns out that this one is the, the most well-equipped of the NOAA FSVs. Uh, the, the ship has a number of acoustic instruments on it. These uh, geometries show uh, kind of a cartoon of the acoustic uh, field that is being used to insonify animals in the ocean to uh, understand their distribution and estimate their abundances. We have a long-range imaging sonar that looks out uh, 360 degrees close to the ocean surface to observe uh, fish schools uh, that are very shallow. We have a three-dimensional imaging sonar 
that is used to uh, potentially get three, 3D um, movies of, of fish to look at their three-dimensional structure and their behaviors. We have a multi-beam sonar that allows us to look at a large swath of the ocean um, and the, uh, get a cross-sectional view of the distribution of fish in the context of the seabed habitat. Last but perhaps most importantly for our surveys is a, a six-frequency echo sounder that projects down below the, the ship and gives us a, an image of, of the animals that are reflecting sound in the area between the sea surface and the seabed. This particular echogram uh, is showing uh, echoes from a variety of animals, but of interest to us in this survey are echoes from small pelagic fish schools shown in red. These small pelagic fish schools can be a variety of species. They can be, as I mentioned, sardine, anchovy, jack mackerel, Pacific mackerel, herring. Um, and so at nighttime, when these fish uh, ascend to the surface and spread out and do their feeding at night, we do some surface trawling and get, get samples of the, the various fish species and we get uh, samples to measure their length distributions. So as I shown in the echogram, there's, a, there's echoes that are returning from a variety of species and we look at the, what we call the acoustic signatures um, both in, in modeling shown in, in black or this blue line here and or validated by uh, measurements that are made under controlled conditions, for example in the the test tank that we have at Southwest Fisheries Science Center. It sees acoustic signatures that allow us to apportion the echo energy to the various species that are present and help us to better interpret the data that we're collecting while we're at sea. So we conduct these acoustic surveys with the fishery survey vessels along these transect lines that run perpendicular to the coast and span in this particular survey from the U.S.-Mexican border up to the north end of Vancouver Island. And we get echograms like this continuously throughout the survey. The next challenge is to apportion this acoustic backscatter, or the echoes that are returning from a variety of animals, uh, using the frequency-dependent uh, acoustic signatures to extract just the energy that is coming from the small pelagic fish schools. We then take this information, uh, sum the echo energy over different depth ranges, which is a process that we call echo integration, and we can plot that integrated echo energy that's attributed to small pelagic fish schools throughout the, the uh, coastline map to look at their distribution. As I mentioned, we do nighttime trawling to get the species proportions in these various areas and the lengths of those various species. And we apportion these data, the echoes that are attributed to small pelagic fish, to the various species in a, a nearest neighbor approach. So the, Species proportions are used to apportion these, this echo data. The total energy that's uh, integrated for a particular species is then divided by the energy for an individual of that species, representative of that length distribution, and that gives us a numerical density. We can then multiply that numerical density for, say, sardine by the area that we've surveyed, and that gives us a, a, an abundance, and if we know the the mass per unit fish, we can estimate the biomass. So we do this for all the species throughout the survey area, and we can get maps and track the, the population trajectories and their distributions um, for migratory behavior and other types of behaviors, associations with the environment and things of this nature for all the different species. 
Uh, shown here in red are the distributions and relative abundance shown in the different sizes of these bubbles for Pacific sardine. Um, in, in blue, dark blue, jack mackerel, and light blue, Pacific mackerel. This is an example of some of our data from the surveys that were conducted between the spring of 2006 and the summer of 2014. As I mentioned, we're collecting lengths, and we, we can uh, use the combination of the fish densities and the abundance estimates and apportion it to length. This is one of my favorite graphs because it, I think it uh, conveys quite a lot of information very succinctly, but I'll take a little bit of time here to orient you to some of the detail that hopefully you'll find interesting. The x-axis is our survey year. The y-axis is the standard length of the fish going from the smaller sardine at the top to the largest sardine at the bottom. These bubbles are proportional to the abundance of the, the fish stock uh, in that particular year, separated by fish length bin. The colors are associated with the, the cohort, or, or when these fish were uh, recruited to the population. A couple things I'd like to point out to you is that this stock during this time period, and I'll remind you that it was transitioning from a warm period to a cold period, was comprised of basically two cohorts, and there were very few small fish indi indicating that the, the production of this stock was, was low. The, the growth of the animals, the sardine, during this time period was contrasted or, or reduced by the uh, combination of both natural uh, mortality and, and fishing mortality, and the stock biomass uh, exhibited a precipitous drop. Uh, this is the, the stock biomass in, in millions of metric tons. And uh, the black is the, the biomass, red on this y-axis, and the, the gray bars, which maybe you can see from your, your seat, are indicating the 95% confidence intervals of our survey estimates for this stock. It was during this time that uh, we, we were exhibiting this uh, precipitous drop uh, with uh, only two cohorts that were dominating the, the population that the exploitation shown in the gray uh, increased. In uh, 2015 the exploitation stopped as the fishery was, was closed. Um, the, the stock biomass fell below a managerial management threshold, population threshold. Even before 2015, though, there was a lot of indications that uh, the things that we were observing through the acoustic survey results were um, indicative of kind of a replication of what was uh, observed historically in the, the Cannery Row uh, events um, in the, in the mid-1900s. Um, we published a paper in 2012 that... Uh, expressed the ideas that the environment was transitioning to a cold period that was less conducive to sardine production. The uh, stock was comprised of very few cohorts, making it uh, less resilient to variations in the environment. And uh, there was uh, an increased uh, harvest by the uh, northern, northern fisheries, which were taking the largest, most fecund fish. So, coincident with the decline of, of the, the principal component of the forage fish assemblage, sardine, 
We saw that there was uh, mass strandings, deaths, and reproductive failures in, in the sardine predators. There just wasn't enough forage fish to, to su support uh, all the animals that uh, were reliant upon them. So we wondered at that time, now that the environment was transitioning to a, another cold regime, which people have hypothesized would uh, support uh, anchovy production, would indeed anchovy start to uh, resurge. Well, we hadn't seen much anchovy through the surveys uh, between 2008 and 2014, but in 2015 we started to see uh, signs of, of anchovy in our trawl catches in the area between San Diego and just north of, of San Francisco. They are very small, young of the year anchovy, um, and there was uh, a sign that it was quite a large uh, recruitment. In 2016, we surveyed the same areas and we saw not only had the uh, population increased in size and biomass, but it had extended throughout the uh, historical range of what we call the central stock of, of northern anchovy. We continued the surveys uh, even through this year, and we saw that this new uh, recruitment event for anchovy that we first observed in 2015 uh, increased in, in size and, and increased in biomass. And you can also observe that uh, how rapidly these things can change. These small, uh, small pelagic fish respond very rapidly to uh, environmental conditions, and, and when conditions are good, they, the stocks can rebound quite rapidly, uh, as is evidenced by these results. So we conduct our surveys, as I mentioned, by these large uh, fishery survey vessels, uh, the Reuben Laskers on the order of 210 feet long. It's quite expensive to operate, and for that reason, uh, the surveys which began in 2006, both in the spring and summer of each year, have been cut back, and now we're conducting the surveys only once per year in the, in the summer. And there are some limitations to these surveys. They don't necessarily survey all the way uh, in, into bays, which there might be some some additional portions of the population. Uh, the ship can't safely navigate very close to shore. Uh, and so for these three reasons, primarily um, the po possibility that we might not have enough ship time to, to continue the, the surveys at the frequency that we would like, and that there are times when we, can't, we, we need an alternative survey platform to survey when, where, and how the ship can't survey that uh, has motivated us to look at uh, alternative platforms, principally um, autonomous platforms. In 2010, my group began uh, developing, in conjunction with industry, uh, an autonomous underwater vehicle that was fitted with uh, custom fisheries instrumentation an echo sounder, an, an acoustic Doppler current profiler to measure water currents, a stereo camera to, to get optical imagery of the various fish species that were echoing sound. We've also, in 2018, uh, collaborated with a company called Sail Drone out of Alameda, California, to, to use autonomous uh, wind-powered uh, vessels that are, have acoustic instrumentation on them as well. And with five of them, during the same time that we surveyed the west coast with our ship, uh, surveyed all the transect lines with these drones called sail drones. In addition to just replicating the transects that we've done with the ship for comparison, we also 
uh, tested the ideas of, of doing some augmentation of the data, data streams that we're getting from the ship. We've sampled much closer to shore, and we sampled a line, transect line repeatedly off a of point conception that uh, is an experiment to look at whether or not we can use uh, continuous measurements to, to get estimates of the abundances of, of migrating fish populations and to look at the timings of their migration. Also off of this, this point, point conception, uh, we're working with Scripps Institution of Oceanography to deploy highly instrumented mooring arrays. I have uh, echo sounders on these arrays that will allow us to, to track the, the depth distribution and the migration times and perhaps the abundances of fish that move past this point. Uh, Scripps also has what they call buoyancy gliders shown here, the spray glider that can be instrumented as well with acoustics and other oceanographic instrumentation and can do sawtooth uh, trajectories along this transect line to, to get ocean observations as well. My group and I have developed a lander uh, system that gives us the ability to continuously monitor acoustic backscatter from echo sounders that are providing wide bandwidth information that gives us uh, quite a lot more uh, possibilities for remote sensing and species identification. It also has hydrophones on board to look at variations in sounds that are being generated by some species of fish. So before I continue, I'd like to take another step back and um, kind of put all this research in, into a larger context. Why is it that we're doing these studies? Well, one reason for me is the recognition that it was just in my lifetime, the human population has grown from about 3.5 billion people to now over 7 billion people. And by 2040, it's expected it's going to exceed 9 billion. Well, with all these people eating an increasing amount of fish, the wild fish stocks are increasingly being overfished. The number of fish stocks that are fully exploited is increasing, and the number of fish stocks that are being overfished is increasing. Not only are there more people, but the, in the last 25 years, there's been a tendency for the humans to, to eat more fish. The per capita consumption of fish during this period is, is, is almost doubled. The additional fish that are, are, are feeding us all is, is increasingly coming from aquaculture. Aquaculture um, is being done worldwide to, to try to meet the demands of the uh, human needs for, for protein. Um, but one consideration that we're grappling with at the moment is much of this aquaculture is developing or producing uh, fish that are larger on the f and higher on the food chain. And the agency and, and industry are, are working, endeavoring to, uh, to, to address the, the issue that much of it or most of the, the aquaculture is, is being fed meal that is derived from the reduction of, of wild small pelagic fish. The agency uh, is, is uh, conducting this, this research to be responsive principally to the, the Magnuson-Stevens Fisheries Conservation and Management Act. Uh, that was, was put in place in, in, in 1976. There are, are multiple objectives to this. Uh, the, the first, the principal objectives, I should say, are to prevent overfishing. Uh, there's also, in the cases that overfishing occurs, uh, the need to, to, to act and, and try to mitigate uh, this phenomenon. There's also competing interests, and, and another objective is to, to increase long-term economic and, and social benefits. Uh, 
and to do so um, while ensuring a safe and, and sustainable seafood supply. So there's a lot of uh, different subjects that we're addressing tonight. Uh, I've talked a little bit about ocean technology that we're using for fish. We've talked about ethics. We've, we've talked about uh, food. Um, I've interjected, as I said, for fun, but also to try to inspire some conversation, a, a number of proverbs. And um, I've also derived one myself uh, that I'll, I'll put out there. Um, it was inspired by uh, the equation that we use for compound interest. And it, it goes like this, that for in, in nature's interest, um, I think we should consider the environment and, and not eat the principle. So I'll remind you that uh, things I said tonight are, are, are my opinions and, and, and mine only. And um, I would like... Uh, when, when the time is appropriate to, to try to answer some of your questions. Thank you. One of the very first questions that I got for David is, I'd like to know more about the cold versus warm anchovies versus sardines. Is there a specific adaptation that causes the temperature preference in the species? Uh, there's quite a lot of research that's being done to try to answer this question. Uh, some of the research that's been done thus far uh, points to the different uh, feed ad adaptations that the different species have they, uh, and, and the different um, zooplankton species that uh, result uh, or that are um, produced during these, these different regimes uh, that are uh, more uh, accessed by, by the feeding mechanisms or the feeding behaviors of, of anchovy versus sardine. And to further that, I mean, when what you were saying in the presentation is that sardines are gradually migrating up the coast, it seems. Is there a good chance that they'll be gone from the California coast? So sardine have a, a migration from off of central and southern California during the, the winter and spring period where they are, uh, where they do their their um, <clears throat> reproduction uh, spawn and uh, during the summer months they compress along the coast and migrate uh, north uh, so it's not necessarily a, an onshore offshore it's, it's more north and south as the stock uh, decreased in size the, the annual migration or the seasonal migration contracted when the stock size got below approximately 750,000 tons the, the migration stopped, and, and uh, when the stock increased above more or less that same level, the migration uh, resumed. It's, it's unsure where the stock uh, contracts to exactly, but it appears as though it's contracted uh, into the Southern, Southern California area. Uh, I should mention that there are multiple stocks of sardine. The one stock that I've been speaking about we call the, the northern subpopulation of sardine. And synchronously with the migration of this stock uh, between California and, and farther north, there's a migration of, of a central stock of, of sardine that comes up from Baja California into the Southern California Bight. There's research um, being done for, for decades now trying to understand uh, whether these stocks uh, during times when the populations are low mix 
or, or whether they remain separate. And then another question that I had when you were going through the presentation, too, is you said that some of the larger predatory species were, were disappearing. They're, they're not feeding off the fish as often. What kind of species are those? I know you had the picture of the seal with the fish in the circle. Okay, so there's California sea lions, and, and weren't, if, if I gave the impression that they're disappearing, that's, not, that's incorrect. <laughs> right. Uh, they, they, they were challenged by a lower, lower food source, and... Uh, um, there, there are brown pelicans that were uh, having some difficulties during these times as well. Um, mures, there, there's a, a number of species that uh, reliant upon small pelagic fish that uh, felt the effects of a, a decrease in the total forage fish assemblage during this time. And then another question that, that we have is, are strategies to support sustainable fish populations working? <laughs> it's a loaded question. <laughs> it's a, a loaded question because the, the characterization of sustainability in fish stocks, particularly those uh, small, related to small pelagics, um, might not lend itself to um, what you might think is, is sustainable. As I mentioned, the environment has, has very uh, strong influence on the population abundance. And these stocks can go in what we call boom and bust cycles uh, uh, very, very rapidly. And it's a challenge to, to think about uh, the, a stock that goes through these ups and downs in terms of uh, sustainability. Um, and, and it's this uh, influence in the environment that uh, gives rise to the uh, the conversation about what is causing the, the reduction of the population biomass. Is it the human exploitation? Is it the environment? Would, would the decrease in the abundance occur irrespective of, of uh, harvesting pressure and things of this nature? And then they followed that question with this. And you were presenting this in, in your presentation. It says... Will we have enough fish populations to, to really feed the world as it's growing? Will we be able to sustain what we have, or is it gradually going to disappear? What, what, because you're an expert on this, you study this, like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, close to the end of my presentation, I showed a graph um, that was uh, produced by the Food and Agricultural Organization, FAO, that uh, showed a, a a fairly constant level of, of food, fish, seafood that's being supplied from um, wild stocks and a, a larger increase in the, uh, the amount of seafood that's coming from now from aquaculture. Um, there could be multiple reasons for that, uh, getting better at aquaculture. It's becoming a, a higher priority for, for humans to produce food through aquaculture. It can also be driven by uh, the difficulty, increasing difficulty in extracting more and more uh, food from the ocean, from these wild stocks. So I, it, it, it could be, in some sense, kind of a, reached a, a capacity uh, to, to extract uh, wild fish from, from the oceans. Um, but I guess to be, to be honest about this, my... my uh, expertise is, is more in the, the technologies that we use to, to, to study the, the fishes and, and zooplankton. 
um, and developing instrument platforms that are used to, to put those instruments out into the ocean. Um, so I guess I maybe use this segue to, to see if there's any questions more about the technologies that I use. I do have a question about the tech. I have quite a few. Um, uh, are there any legal restraints that keep you from, from using this technology in certain areas? There are requirements to, to get permits, even for the federal government, when we do these surveys, uh, when we're operating and, and uh, conducting trawls in, in state waters, for example, or international waters. Uh, we're in marine protected areas, and so those are some, some of the restrictions that we have for, for using this type of technology. Um, there are some, I guess those are probably some of the main, main limitations. Um, some of the other limitations are, are more physical constraints, operating safely in, in nearshore environments, in, in bays, uh, in highly trafficked areas, shipping channels. Uh, in areas where crab pots are deployed, uh, things of this nature. Um, another, another. I, I was been fascinated by this question. Um, it stops. It's a good one. I love this question. It says, "What stops somebody from adapting um, or taking advantage of this technology to find and exploit endangered populations?" Is that a concern that somebody could hack into this technology? Um, I think that the application of the technologies that we use for studying the fish populations and, and getting high quality information about their distributions and their abundances uh, and the species alternations and things is limited by, number one, the, the cost of the instruments and the, and the ship time that we, we require to, to collect this information and also the expertise that's necessary to extract the information from the the remote samples and the statistical sampling. Um, but that said, there are a number of, uh, of fishers and, and fishing companies that do have this type of inf uh, technology and the expertise to use it. And so the limitation there is, is uh, their desire to, to maintain sustainable fisheries, to, to continue with their business operation. Uh, and, and also the limitations that are imposed through regulation. And then a question from somebody is, what sustainable ways um, can be created to, to prevent overfishing? I, 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 think, I think I, <laughs> but even much more so, the, the management arms of our agency uh, grapple with this continuously. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the Magnuson-Stevens Act uh, has a lot of uh, objectives, uh, and, and some of them uh, are foremost to, to avoid overfishing and to deal with overfishing when it occurs, but there's also socioeconomic considerations that they, they have in the mix, and there's a number of constituents uh, and stakeholders that uh, compete for uh, the development and the implementation of, of different uh, managerial management policies. Another question. I'll keep it technology-related. We're going to go back and forth from general questions to technology questions. In terms of this um, technology, what would you say is... Where do, you see, where do you see the future going with this technology? Well, it, it seems clear to me that 
we are doing more sampling um, with a larger number of instruments and collecting even more data from autonomous platforms. Uh, when I began doing this 30 years ago, everything was done from, from uh, a survey vessel. And gradually over this time period, uh, we've, we've evolved to collecting the data from highly instrumented small craft to, to buoys. And, and now, uh, more and more routinely, we're, we're making measurements from autonomous uh, underwater vehicles, uh, autonomous surface vehicles, from aerial drones and this, and this type of thing. Uh, so that's the trajectory as far as the instrument platforms. The trajectory for instrumentation, I think, is we're getting more and more uh, ability to uh, do remote sensing of, of not just uh, large differences in taxon, large fish versus small zooplankton, but uh, discern whether or not the, the fish or the zooplankton have gas inclusions. And, uh, we're incrementally advancing towards, uh, in some cases, getting some species differentiation. And, and that process is not being done just through the information we can extract from the, the echo, but uh, combining that information with a variety of, of information data sources. Uh, for example, learning whether these echoes are um, measured nearshore or offshore uh, in association with certain uh, water masses um, uh, have some different types of distinguishing aggregation behavior. And by putting together uh, data from a lot of different sources and, and perhaps doing so using big data sources and artificial intelligence, we're, we're making some larger advances in, in this type of um, remote species identification, which has been kind of the, the holy grail of my business. Right. And then... Um Another good technological question, um, a little bit similar but different to a question we asked. Is there a risk of the misuse of this technology or the data you collect? I think a previous question kind of alluded to the possibility that you know, we're understanding on, on global scales now the, the, the distributions of uh, environmental parameters and, and we're understanding the influence of those parameters on, on animal distributions and we're, we're getting quite good now at mapping animal distributions and tracking them. Uh, it's, it's going to be less and less easy for, for wild animals to escape our observations. Uh, that has, you know, it's a double-edged sword like, like all of technology, I think. Uh, we know better how much uh, how much life there is out there, and, and uh, that gives us the ability to manage it better, but it also gives us the ability to exploit it uh, more efficiently. Uh, a good question for us as students and faculty. Um, I mean, from your perspective, there are things that fishermen can do to preserve fish populations, but, but is there anything that we as students and faculty, faculty can do to... to um, I mean, we're, we're having a growing population. You said that the population is going to hit 9 billion in our lifetime, which is a lot. Um, I mean, what responsibility do we have, what ethical responsibility do we as students and faculty have to, to preserve these fish populations, would you say? And are there any actions that we can take? I think the, the answer to that, at least from my perspective, is, is not limited to, to fish, but all natural resources. Uh, I find that 
Um, actions that have some effect are, are mostly those that uh, originate with people's uh, involvement, uh, their, their education of the issues uh, and their active participation in, in the, uh, the management procedures and, and uh, systems that we've, we've set up to try to, to have a, an, a positive effect um, when we are exploiting um, natural resources. So learning about the issues and, and uh, becoming actively involved in, in the regional uh, fisheries management organizations are, are some possibilities. And then I think more generally, uh, as I understand it, uh, eating lower on the food chain is, is something that we can do actively day, day to day uh, that uh, might have collectively a, uh, an impact on on uh, the sustainability of, of ocean uh, marine life. And these are some questions that I've asked, but I think the audience might find these fascinating. It's not the technological, but it's just, I find it all fascinating. You're from Arizona. You were born and raised in Arizona, and yet you travel the world studying fish populations. What got you interested in, in the ocean and fish? I think because I came from Arizona, <laughs> I, I, I grew up in, in Tucson. It was uh, relatively small. Um, it's probably grown by fourfold since I, I grew up there. Uh, there was limited things to do. Um, I, I spent a lot of time in Southern California uh, playing water polo and swimming competitively, uh, trying my... my uh, trying, trying to learn to surf, and uh, in, in that... Uh, in, during that time period, I, I stumbled upon a career fair that was going on at Southwest Fisheries Science Center uh, that opened my eyes to the possibilities of, of um, potentially being employed in, in this field. And uh, I forgot about it for a while, went back and studied electrical and computer engineering at University of Arizona, uh, worked at Intel Corporation, and uh, through one of my um, visits back to, to Arizona to play water polo, uh, I, I was questioned by a person on the team, why aren't you studying oceanography? Um, got me thinking again, and uh, that kind of put me back on a track to, to uh, get admitted to UCSD and their Applied Ocean Science program that merged electrical and computer engineering with oceanographic uh, investigations and uh, got reconnected with the Southwest Fisheries Science Center, uh, was asked by the director of the Antarctic Ecosystems Research Group to use uh, some of my skills in, in computing, uh, Unix system administration, um, echo sounder technology, digital signal processing, and, and apply it to, to uh, studies of, of krill. I guess uh, I've told you much of the rest of the story. Right, right. And I remember you lived in Antarctica for a while studying krill populations, and you have a very fascinating history with all of this. And... Um, I think that we, as students, we're going to Grossmont, a lot of us. Most of us here are Grossmont College students, faculty, and we live next to the ocean. And I know from talking to students that they have a fascination with the ocean. I think that a lot of students here might have an interest in, in being an oceanographer in the future. What advice would you have for the students here who, who are thinking about pursuing that path? I think perhaps the... Uh the main thing is to recognize that oceanography has a lot of sub-disciplines. There's chemical oceanography, physical oceanography, biological and geological oceanography. And within each of those different disciplines, there's a number of sub-disciplines. You might imagine that 
the number of disciplines associated with studying the oceans is probably equivalent to those that are associated with studying uh, land or, or space and the atmosphere. So it, it's quite a, a diverse um, uh, opportunity, and I think getting out, um, looking for perhaps internships or other opportunities that will expose you to uh, different aspects of oceanography is something that uh, might help you um, focus uh, both your studies and and a uh, development of talents that could be uh, distinguishing at some point. Uh, I, I started to work on digital signal processing and, and computing. Um, I had some electronics background. Uh, you know, somebody might look at uh, developing GIS skills or um, computer-aided design skills. Um, they might uh, manufacturing technology. You know, there's a lot of uh, that going on in, in the development of ocean technologies. Um, I, I think the, the main point there is, is you, you need to distinguish yourself from all of the other people that, uh, or a number of other people that are also interested in getting involved in oceanography and becoming employed at some point in that field. And I also find that it's an important thing not just in oceanography, but probably perhaps any professional um, career to, to hone your, your writing skills. I like that answer a lot. <laughs> I teach English here. Um, another question that I had, um, I went to UCSD and Scripps, and I saw this fish tank that you have, and it's humongous. It's, more, it's the biggest fish tank I've ever seen in my life. And I know that you were talking about you study fish populations in that tank. Or what, what types of populations have you studied in that tank? Um, they're very small if they're in that tank, but the, 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 the species, um, various species that we study in the ocean and the, the populations that we're trying to understand in the oceans, uh, we, we put into the tank to try to uh, understand how the animals of different sizes uh, and orientations uh, reflect sound as a function of frequency. So we put sardine and we've anchovy, uh, krill, um, and other animals that we, we study with the echo sounders in the ocean into the tank, and that gives us the ability to, to uh, in controlled fashion, modulate some of the more important parameters that might affect their uh, acoustic reflectivity. And I just had just a couple more questions. One would be, um, um, I know that we have threatened species right off our coast, fish species specifically, and do you feel that your technology has a, a chance to help the species um, gain balance again? Um, <laughs> That's a some, some depleted rockfish uh, populations are off of our coast, and uh, I, I've spent maybe eight years studying rockfish uh, that uh, were too depleted to, to take subsamples of them, and uh, not only that, that they are located in, in what we call untrollable uh, rocky reef areas, and we've developed technology combinations uh, using uh, multi-frequency acoustic echo sounders, um, multi-beam sonars to map the, the bathymetry and to classify the, the seabed type in conjunction with the distributions of, of the rockfish that are present in these areas. And then instead of using trawls, we, we uh, use the maps that we create acoustically to create navigational tools to drive the remotely operated vehicles through these, through these aggregations. And that gives us the ability to, to determine the species proportions of the rockfish and get estimates of their length distributions. 
and by the combination of the acoustic backscatter that we measure from these rockfish aggregations and then apportioning that to species and, and lengths, we can get population estimates of their abundance um, by species. And by repeated surveys of this type, we can track the recovery of these uh, de depleted stocks. So that's one thing we've been doing. And then I know that this is a complicated question. I don't know if you can answer it, but um, is, are there any ethical concerns with the technology you're using, with the sonars you're using? Is there any damage they might do to the ecosystem that you would know of? Or what, what things have you done to, to try to facilitate that so it doesn't harm the species? So the two principal uh, sampling techniques that I talked about were the echo sounders and the, and the uh, trawling. Um, the echo sounders are transmitting very short duration, uh, high frequency pulses of sound that are inaudible to, to fish and to, to humans. And uh, I've swam underneath the transducers. Uh, it's, it's not um, a concern to me. It doesn't appear to uh, cha change the behavior of the fish that we've had in the tank and observing closely with eye and, and video. Um, there doesn't there's been a lot of work on looking at the perception of these frequencies uh, and, and transmit power levels um, that indicate that they, they don't have the, the sensitivity to, the, to these uh, remote sensing uh, pulses of sound. Lower frequencies, have, have, um, they're more adapted to, and, and we're, we're not using those. Uh, probably more invasive, probably. Much more invasive is the, the, the capture of, of uh, samples of fish through the, the trawls. And as I mentioned, we, we don't do that when the stocks are depleted that we're sampling. We do it uh, for these um, small pelagic fish, and that gives us the species proportions and lengths, as I measured, mentioned. Um, but one of the more um, perhaps concerning uh, issues is that these large trawls can have the possibility of capturing animals that we don't intend to capture. We would like to have just samples of the small pelagic fish that we're targeting and trying to, to estimate the abundances for, um, but we don't uh, close our eyes to the fact that they, these large trawls um, can potentially capture animals that are foraging upon these small pelagics. And so we put pingers on the on the head rope and, and the foot rope of these, these trawls that uh, make noise that our uh, large cetaceans are, are sensitive to, and it uh, kind of shouts out to, to uh, um, dolphins and, and seals, the, uh, a net is approaching. Um, we also put uh, bars and what we call a, a marine mammal excluder device in, in, the, in the nets that allows large animals that if they do enter the, the net, we'll get shunted out of, of the net. So, so there's a number of mitigation measures that we try to put in place uh, in addition to those uh, strategies for, for mitigating risk. Uh, we also have marine mammal watches before any of our trawls to uh, and try to ensure that there are no uh, marine mammals in the area. And we're trying to develop now passive acoustic techniques where we're not only looking uh, with, with eyes and, and, and other tools um, to detect them optically, but we're also listening for sounds that they, they generate to see if there are any animals um, that we should try to avoid in the area that we're doing trawls. And if there are, then we, 
we um, stop stop the trawling activity and move to another area. I can think. Of, I just have more and more questions <laughs> as I listen because I I love this topic and I'm very fascinated by fish and we, I teach this with my students. We go over to these topics and I don't know if you could answer this question, but I know that there are issues with fish farming and and you were pointing some of those issues out earlier about how we need to feed smaller fish. But I know that one of the issues that we've had with fish farming is that. Some of these species are escaping, so they're genetically modified superfish. I was reading in the newspaper that um, they've developed salmon that can grow two times the size of salmon. And some of the issues are that these fish are getting out of these cages or these areas and breeding with other fish. And I know that's more of a problem for salmon species, but I, I don't know if this would be a problem for... I know that they're fishing tuna off our coast and things like that. Is this an issue off our coast, would you say? I don't know if you could answer that question. I'm just curious. <laughs> I don't think I have a good answer for that. <laughs> right. um, the, there's a lot of the types of aquaculture that you're discussing um, advancing uh, for, for decades now uh, in other areas of the world. Uh, we're starting to, to do much more of that in the United States. Uh, the National Marine Fisheries Service is, is uh, trying to uh, foster the development of aquaculture uh, at a larger level. Um, it's, a, it's anticipated but, that by 2025 that approximately two-thirds of the global seafood supply will, will come from aquaculture. Uh, so there's a lot of, of development that's uh, going to be necessary for that to occur. And there's a lot of challenges that we're going to have to address. Uh, it's probably no different than the uh, humans' uh, push towards uh, from uh, harvesting animals nat naturally, natural populations of animals to, to, to farming, uh, or from harvesting plants and their produce to, 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 to the agriculture. Um, I, I, I think that when you start to do things on, on very large scales, it requires um, a lot of forethought. And um, unfortunately, there's going to be trial and error. OK. Um, I believe this concludes our presentation. I'd like to give a round of applause. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.